Well, good morning. It is a joy to be back with you guys. I bring you uh, greetings from my church, your sister church, Crosstown Trinity Church. I was just sitting here thinking, y'all, it is next month will be two years since we've worshiped together the last time. Ugh, I'm so tired of this stupid virus. Go away. Uh, it is good to be back. The last time I had the privilege of opening God's Word for you, y'all were still up in the classroom up the way, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so it's been a little bit. I know many of you, um, but there are some new faces, and I don't know yet. If you do know me, you know that I love to spend some time in the kitchen. Uh, I've had the privilege of cooking for some of you. That's been a joy. But let me tell you about this amazing kitchen gadget that I've been using lately. It will blow your minds. It is such a time saver. Things that used to take 20 minutes now just take like five minutes. Uh, it is so convenient. I find myself using it all the time. Now, I'm not sure if you have one yet. Maybe you haven't even heard of it yet. It's called the microwave. Wait, no? You, you've heard of this already. You are familiar? Oh, dang it. All right. Well, then maybe I should tell you about this app that I recently found on my phone. It is amazing. You can chronicle all of your life on it. Every single thing that you do, even the mundane details. You can add pictures and videos. You can connect. I have connected with people that I haven't talked to since elementary school. I think this thing is going to take off. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It's called Facebook. Yes? No? You've heard of that too. You're already familiar with that too. Uh, well... Those are silly examples. But for real this morning, when I tell you that we're going to go someplace in God's Word, to a passage that has the potential to change your life, to give you insight into the character and nature of God, to give you a robust understanding of your salvation, to challenge some of the ways in which you've been thinking what it means to be a Christian. But then I tell you the place that we're going in Scripture is John 3.16. I bet some of you would look at me like I'm claiming to have just discovered the microwave or Facebook. You're getting all excited about that verse? You think that verse is going to do all that? Man, that's nothing new. Oh, how familiarity often breeds contempt. I, I get it. I have felt the same way about this verse. Uh, when, when I asked JP, what should I preach when I'm here, when we do our pulpit swap? He told me that in February, y'all are going to be on the theme, on the topic of love. And he said, so why not John 3.16? And so the temptation is to say, really? John 3.16? You want me to preach on that? that that's, that's so familiar. That's one of the very first verses that I memorized as a Christian ugh, 40 years ago. 
It's a verse we hear and read and come into contact with all the time. Everywhere you go, there it is. It can lose its impact over time. But having spent time with it again this week, chewing on it, coming to realize again why it is so popular and why we do read it and hear it and see it and find it everywhere. It's because of this. It is an amazing capturing of the beauty and glory of the gospel in 24 words. Now, maybe, maybe you're new to church and, and this verse hasn't had time to lose its shine. Or maybe you're like me and it seems old hat. But my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit will help us all to see the gospel beauty and riches in this very small package this morning. I want to ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word, just so that maybe our hearts would reflect the reverence that our our physical postures are displaying. And I'm going to read the whole paragraph, uh, five or six verses, just to give us some context, and then I'll zero in on this one verse. John 3, 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Father, would you come now and help? Holy Spirit, you inspired these words. You carried along the human authors as they wrote them down. Would you come now and do a work in all of our hearts? Our understanding, our ability to understand your word has been affected by the fall. We don't see it clearly like we ought, and it doesn't penetrate deeply like it should. Would you come in power right now and fix both of those things? Would you loosen the tongue of your messenger? Would you unstop deaf ears and uncover blind eyes? And even from a verse that to some of us is just too familiar, would you do your mighty work? in us so that you can do it through us. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now, to try to recover some of the glory and the grandeur of this verse, if you've been overexposed to it, or to see the glory of the gospel in it for the very first time, I'm going to let 
this verse, these 24 words, answer seven simple questions. I think we've got these on the screen for you. Seven simple questions about these 24 words. Uh, Number one, whose idea was this in the first place? What motivated it? Why should it shock us? And yes, this verse, this verse, this verse that we're so familiar with, it should shock us still today. And if it doesn't, then we've got a problem. What did it cost? Who is it for? What is required? And what are we given? And I don't think it's what we initially think. So those are the seven questions. We'll just quickly walk through them one at a time. First question, whose idea was this anyway? Early on in our study of grammar, we learned to look for the subject of a sentence. Who is doing the action? It's clear when you look at this verse that God is the subject of this sentence of this verse. He is the one taking the action. He is the chief actor and every other actor in this verse if if we were to ooh if we were to diagram this verse right is that triggering for some of you does that uh, does that cause some trauma ooh if we were to diagram this we would see every other person taking action in this verse subordinate to god who is primary this is his idea this is his initiative god as, as that catechism question from earlier, as Joel was talking to us about that, God, the creator of all that exists, all by himself, sovereign, holy. Now, there's lots of glory and grandeur in this simple truth that the gospel was his idea. He took the action necessary for there to even be a gospel. For God so loved the world. He did it. This was his idea. But, question two, why did he do it? What motivated him? He did it because of his love. Now, I think in my mind, my focus has always been drawn further down in the verse. My focus has always been on the giving which is more in the middle of the verse. And I haven't spent enough time on God's loving at the beginning. Technically, right back to our sentence diagram, loved is the main verb of this whole thing. The giving is subordinate to the loving. The giving flows out of the loving. God's gracious and merciful acts flow out of the fact, first and foremost, that He loves. And He loves not because of anything in us, but only because of what is in Him. It's because of who He is. It's His nature. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. And His giving flows out of that love. Now, that His motivation isn't anything in us 
should become clear when we read what the object of His love is in this verse. So now we're getting deep in the weeds here of this sentence diagram. We've got a subject, we've got a verb, we're even going to have a direct object of the verb. God so loved, what did He love? The world. And we get the sense that God's loving the world is a big deal. And it is a big deal, actually. Such a big deal that we should still find this completely and utterly shocking. Now, we read, for God so loved the world, and we think, man, that's a big deal. That's a big deal because the world is so big. There's so many people. There's, what, seven billion people? That must be it. It must be shocking that God loves the world because the world is so big that there are so many people. Well, uh, yeah, but there's more to it than that. Uh, One of the Bible scholars that I was reading, uh, Don Carson, said God's love for the world isn't shocking because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. That's what's shocking. That's what really ought to get our attention. Whenever John, in this gospel or in any of his writings, talks about the world, it always has a negative connotation. He's never saying anything good about the world. It's always bad. Uh, John wrote this gospel. He also wrote three letters to the churches that were, that were helpful. In his, in his first of those letters in chapter 2, he's instructing the churches. He's instructing Christians not to love the world or anything in the world because of all the evil that the world consists of. Even in this gospel, in John's gospel, if you just turn back a couple of pages to chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 9, here's what he has to say about the world. Uh, speaking of Jesus, saying, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Right? He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Right? He created it. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, those in the world, did not receive him. The light that is Jesus came to the world he created and did not find a welcome. Even more explicitly in today's paragraph, if you just look at verse 19 out of chapter 3 here. And this verse just gives me chills every time I read it. Now this is what we're dealing with here. This is the problem. This is the judgment, it says. The light, Jesus the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Jesus the light has come and people have said, eh, I'll love darkness instead. Now that's the world in which we live. And that loving of darkness, that rebellion, has earned for them, has earned for us, perishing. God gave that we might not perish. And perish is what we all will do apart from God's saving intervening work. See, 
it's not that perishing is out there as a possibility, right? Uh, that might happen if you don't turn things around, right? It, it's not like the red button in Washington for all the nuclear weapons, right? It's a possibility. Uh, that would be terrible if the button got pressed. No, this is not some remote possibility if we don't get our acts together. No, perishing is a settled fact and destination for all of us. We weren't born neutral. We can't say, well, the verdict's still out on some of us. Just waiting to see how those scales tip. No, Verse 18 from today's passage, condemned already, every single one of us. Perishing is the just outcome for those who rebel and reject. And that God would love those people. God would love that world, those people, us, should leave us shocked and speechless. God doesn't love the lovable. He doesn't love the worthy. He doesn't love those who finally figured out how to get their acts together. No, in the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 5, he says, no, it's why we were still sinners. It was while we were enemies that God loved and Christ died. God loves a bunch of rebellious rejectors, people who spit in His face, and that is shocking. Question four, what, what would it look like for Him to love us? What would this cost Him? The price for loving, unlovable people like us is steep. For God so loved the world that He gave. It doesn't say, for God so loved the world that He sent. Now, verse 17 uses sin, but the focus here is on giving something that cost Him something. This was a sacrifice. And when it comes to His giving, I want you to think about three things. If you're taking notes under this question, put one, two, three real quick. I want you to think about three things when it comes to the cost of this. I want you to think about, number one, that, that He had to do the giving. If we were to know Him, He had to give because we had nothing to give. We come empty-handed. We come bankrupt. He had to be the one to give. Number two, consider the steep, steep cost of who He gave. He didn't give something. He didn't give some act. He gave a person. He gave His very own Son. If you are a father, if you have a son, obviously it would be gut-wrenching, heartbreaking for any of us fathers in giving their son. But in God the Father giving the Son, He was giving Himself. It had to be so. The only way for God to forgive our rebellion and remain just and holy at the same time was to take on flesh and pay Himself. He had to be 
a substitute in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved. And in this giving of the Son, in this giving of Himself, think about this for a moment. He was ripping apart the intimate fellowship of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God and three blessed persons together for eternity past for a time is ripped apart. Now friends, we have no idea what that was like. We have all experienced sorrow. Some here in this room have experienced an unfair share of sorrow. And none of us has experienced sorrow that can even begin to relate to what this was like. But the reality and the depth of God's love for rebellious rejectors like us led Him to give like that. Oh, the wonder. The third thing to think about about giving the depth of the love, love that would motivate that giving. Think about this. Despite the steep, steep cost of the giving, can you imagine what sort of an insult it would be to God to reject what He gives at such great cost? To somehow think that you'll be okay on your own. To somehow think that you can muster up enough good works or good deeds. To somehow doubt the claims that the Son makes about Himself being the only way, the truth, and the life. Woe to you! Woe to you if in your folly you reject what has been given at such great cost. Question five, who is this for? Who is all this for? The Son is given for whoever believes. Whoever. It is not limited in any way. It is not limited by race or ethnicity. Now that's something that the New Testament apostles and authors would have to repeat over and over again. Because for some strange reason, those who weren't listening very well came to the settled conclusion that Messiah would come to save Israel and judge everybody else. To save God's chosen people Israel to the exclusion of the rest of the world, the Gentiles. No! God gave that whoever would believe could be saved. It's also not limited by whatever you perceive your moral standing to be. We see that again and again if you were to read this gospel. God didn't just give the Son for good little boys and good little girls. He gave the Son to rescue desperate rebels. Now, 
the whoever in this verse has us knocking on the door of something pretty important to consider, something much larger than the scope of this sermon, namely who the whoever will actually be. Now, this is a can of worms I don't have time to open this morning, but if you were to keep reading in John's gospel, John does a a nice enough job opening the can himself. Who will be the ones to believe? The call goes out boldly and broadly to any who are within earshot. But Scripture is also clear that only some will believe. Not everybody will bow the knee to Jesus in this life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the path to eternal life. Not all will believe. Now, like I said, you dig deeper in John's Gospel, you find out all the nitty-gritty there, but for now, suffice it to say that the only ones who will actually believe in the Son that God has sent will be His sheep. The ones to whom He's given the supernatural assistance needed to believe. Now, these verses in John 3 come in the larger context of John chapter 3, right? Jesus is in the middle of a conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus. And he's talking to Nicodemus, trying to get him to understand, look, dude, you've got to have help. You've got to have the new birth. You've got to have the Spirit come in and even reveal to you what this kingdom is about. You can't even see the kingdom without help, much less enter the kingdom without being helped. You have to have the Spirit's powerful new birth before you'll ever see your need. None of us realize we're needy until the Spirit has come to help us see that we're needy, to understand our desperation, to see both the depth of our rebellion and the depth of God's love, the vast cost of His giving the Son, the great peril we face if we reject the gift that has been so costly given. This is for whoever will believe. That leads us to question six. What is required? God loved. God gave. What's our part? How do we respond to that with belief? He gave that whoever believes. Now, think about this just a second. Given the, the, the profound depth of what we've seen so far, this believing can't be some kind of simple intellectual agreement. It's not saying that I believe giving took place. Yes, I do. I I see it over there. I believe that giving took place. No, uh, it's not even to say, well, I believe that Jesus came. It's not even to say, I believe that Jesus died. No, it's it's not believe in that sense. It's belief. It's belief in the sense of I fling myself. I cast myself and all my weight on those truths, and I expect them to bear me up. 
picture in your mind's eye um, a, a building, a multi-story building, and you see smoke billowing out the top window. And, and you focus in a little bit more and you see a child in that window, scared to death, and you see flames lapping up behind her. And you look down and you see rescuers on the ground beneath that window with some type of apparatus, some type of ready to catch her, to cushion her fall. The child clearly believes that they're down there. But will she really believe and will she jump out of that window and expect them to catch her? See, that's the difference, y'all. It's one thing to know they're down there. It's a whole other thing to fling yourself out of a window of a burning building. That's the belief here. Will you fling yourself upon Christ and Him alone? Will you admit your need? Will you receive the reality of the self-sacrifice in your place as your only hope? In place of any amount of hope in you trying to be a better person, trying to do better next time. This type of belief, this type of trust, this, this flinging yourself on Christ, that's what makes the difference between perishing and eternal life. And those are the only two options. This is binary. And this is the only deciding factor between those two options. Now, I could finish right here. But I want to ask one final question. And I really want you to chew on this for a while. Rest of the day, rest of this week, whatever it takes. How do I know that my believing is real? You know, what if, what if I just got spooked about hell? What if I read perishing there and say, I don't want that. So I guess I want the other. Uh, what if my belief was really just emotion? Uh, stemming from the fear of, of hell or, or the desire to have eternal life, because that sounds really nice. Or, those are good, honest questions worth considering. I want you to consider them because I think those are the questions underneath this last question, number seven. What has God given? What is it that you desperately want from God? What is it that you find yourself crying out to Him for? You say, God, give me blank, and you fill in the blank. Give me blank, or else life isn't worth living. Give me blank, or else I die. Maybe it is a, 
a solution to some problem that you're currently facing. Maybe it's some treasure that you seek. Maybe it's even eternal life. Oh, God, please, please, please give me eternal life. Now, look closely at this verse to see what God gives. He doesn't give eternal life. Eternal life is the result of what He gives. What God gives is His Son. He is the treasure. He is the gift. And and that is the way you'll know your believing was and is real. Is that you cling to Jesus Himself as the only and the best gift that you could have ever been given. That's really how this whole gospel begins. Back in chapter 1, John does an amazing job of talking about Jesus not only being the light, but being the Word. And He came, He says, the Word came and in Him was life. Not that He came to bring life. Not that He came to give us gifts, but that in Him is life, that He is the gift. Now, another thing that John would write about in his first letter, a letter written to Christians that needed assurance, written to Christians that needed to know, is my belief real? It actually talks about God giving eternal life, but is very specific about how he does give it. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Well, there it is. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He gives eternal life by giving the Son. Do you have the Son? Have you flung yourself on Him expecting Him to bear you up? Is He in and of Himself, and and not the benefits that He brings, is He the most worthy and beautiful gift you can ever imagine possessing. By God's grace, may it be so. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your powerful Word. Thank You for Jesus who is the Word. And that in Him is life. And I pray for those this morning that are in the sound of my voice that perhaps today will be the day that they stop believing intellectually about Jesus and actually fling themselves out of the window and expect them Expect Jesus' self-sacrifice in our place to catch them and to bear them up. And for those this morning that wonder whether their belief is real, 
or if this is just some emotional decision I've made in the past. Lord, I pray that the answer to that question would be found in finding Jesus to be the most valuable, the most beautiful, the treasure in and of Himself. And when that happens, may that soul give you praise. May you be glorified and honored in Jesus. May you be exalted and lifted up. You are the worthy Lamb who was slain. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.